Welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with David and Will from Absurdist Productions. David and Will are both game designers with a passion for education. Their current title, PaleoVet, is currently on Kickstarter. Gentlemen, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good, yeah. Great to be here. Oh, it is awesome to have you here. Uh, man, uh, first, before we get into the stories, I, I just want to congratulate you guys. Uh, you are doing uh, quite well on this yeah, campaign. We're, we're very happy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going better than expected. And yeah, we're really excited about that. I'm going to put in Canadian dollars because it's the only way I can see it. It always sounds bigger <laughs> anyway. So we're almost at $25,000 in Canadian dollars on a pledge target of about 11500 So double your goal. Uh, still got 15 days to go, 340 backers. Uh, as you said, you guys have got to be quite happy with that, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we definitely are. Uh, so when I see a, a name like Absurdist Productions, it's a weird name. It's absurd. Like, where did yes. this come from? Um, kind of two parts of that. One, when we decided we were going to kind of get together and form this, uh, this board game company, I had been working on a card game about fighting over meat at a Brazilian steakhouse. It's called Chuscaria. Um, so that, that was one part. So which is, you know, just our, our first game was this weird little card game about fighting over food. And then we were sitting there trying to you know, think, what, what are we going to name this company? And we went online and we were looking up all these different animal themed names and we're big, you know, like I said, with education, we're big on researching things. So we went out yeah. and looked at copyrights and patent, looking at all these things and searching, trying to find a name that would work. And every time we came up with something, we'd look and someone somewhere was already using it. And one of us, I don't remember which, made a comment about it being absurd. And then I was like, well, that's our name then. We're just, <laughs> and we're going to, you know, that's, that's where it led us. So, and then you got a D6 with a one pip on each side. So yep. that's kind of absurd as well. How, and how did you guys meet? Like, where did, uh, like, have you been buddies for a while or is this kind of something new or how did you guys kind of connect? Well, we have been friends for a while now. So we met through, um, we met through a mutual friend playing D&D actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we kind of like joined up at some game nights at a mutual friend's house and uh, played some D&D and stuff together. Um, and then things really kind of got kicked off when we, we sort of like a bunch of our friends went on a group trip down to the PAX South convention. Um, um, yep. And uh, that's what inspired Churiscaria, and uh, that's what you know, kind of, got, kind of got us going on these ideas. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we, I mean, we we'd known each other through the friends before that, but it was after that that I I I was previously in the military. I'd gotten out of the, out of the U.S. military, the Air Force, looking for a new job, and my background was uh, in instructional design, so designing, you know, teaching, mm. and I was designing a card game, and Will works for a, a department at university of Oklahoma that designs educational video games. And we started talking about that. He's like, you should apply. And I applied, I ended up getting hired by them. And so we, you know, for almost three years worked together designing educational video games before I moved oh, wow. on to some to other stuff, but that's, you know, that got us working very close together, realized we worked really well together. And I think I'd been there for maybe six months when we finally decided, you know what, Let, let's do this. Let's, let's make a, a side company and let's start making our own games. So as so this is a is it a hobby now or like are you guys still working kind of in the video game industry and doing this on the side or kind of how does that 
So yeah, I'm still working on, um, so it's really more the education industry than the video game industry. Yeah. You know? sure. So that is my day job. Um, yeah. I work for a grant funded place. We do um, games for high schools and uh, middle school students. You know, it's all based, it's all standards based. It's all, you know, just very educational stuff. Um, and that's a really great job and I enjoy it. But yeah, this is absolutely a side project that we're trying to build into something bigger. Yeah. Um, and it's getting there, you know, it's a slow Sure. Oh, grinding process, but it is getting yeah. there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm my day job. I actually, uh, I work, I still design education, uh, you know, mostly for government organizations. Oh, wow. So I, I work for a company doing contract work, doing that. Um, but yeah, pretty much get off work every day and start getting into game design and, you know, working our, our plans for the future for absurdist production. So someday, Hopefully not too far in the future, you know, service productions will be the day job, but right now it's the the side gig. So when you say design educational games, either for high school or for the military, like, Mm -hmm. like, what do you mean by that? Is it like, like a, like a math game, like, or is it like, you know, gamification of certain concepts or can you, can you talk to us a little bit about this? So, yeah, um, well, all of the above a little bit. So yeah. my role is uh, instructional designer um, okay. and then game designer. And so a lot of what I do is we identify a topic that we want to teach. And we've done a lot of different topics. We've done everything mm-hmm. from, you know, financial literacy to math, to statistics, to um, college going culture, to mm-hmm. um, mitigating cognitive bias for military mm. people, like all kinds of things. Right. Yep. Um, so somebody identifies that we, I do sort of a deep dive research into that topic, talk to experts on it. Um, the same kind of things that a person would do if they were designing any type of course. Um, and then I take that and I transfer it into a game. So, you know, while normal, like, like entertainment game design, you might be looking at like, okay, how do I want to meld this story that I'm trying to tell this narrative with these game mechanics and make something I'm doing that. Plus the third piece of like, it's got to build the the narrative and the mechanics and the um, educational like objectives and all of that together into one thing. Um, And so, yeah, that's in a very short nutshell, kind of what it is, you know, um, figuring all that out, figuring out how to, how to fit um, educational objectives and things mm-hmm. into a game that is fun and that is that's engaging that gets people to actually want to play it you know and that isn't just simple gamification um although yeah. we've done a little bit of that too but um yeah. mostly we want to do you know something more akin to serious games or more akin to like you know meaningful games that are actually um you know you're just doing the thing that you're learning and so it's it's there's way more uh fun to it than just something that's giving you yeah. badges or points for doing mm-hmm regular schoolwork yeah you know that's not there's nothing fun about that that's just you know yeah one of my um, favorites that we designed together was called paper trail where it was the topic was business ethics and so we made we made a we designed a point and click adventure game where you are a new hire at a company and you start uncovering corruption and embezzlement and all this stuff going on it and as you play through the various chapters of this story you're you're learning more about it but you're also depending on your ethical decisions digging yourself deeper and getting yourself more wrapped into the you know to this corruption yourself yeah um and that one we actually ended up we had what five or six different endings to the game depending on what your decisions were over the course of the game where you know you you could the people that were doing all the corruption could get arrested and taken away and you know you save the day or you could end up in a jail cell at the end so it you know it had you know kind of multiple paths you could take and you know so it's because the big thing is it's it's not like you know math blaster you know there's 
the very you know a lemonade stand or yeah, yeah the, the barely the barely games kind of things that a lot of us had as kids it's you know we we tried really hard to make very engaging experiences so the, the students are having fun while they're learning because that's that was the key that's the key to a good educational game is if the student's not enjoying the experience they're not going to learn anything from it so a game like this i'm just going to tease us right up a little bit because uh, yeah. that game first of all that game sounds awesome <laughs> all right so uh so a game like paper trail is this something is is it for businesses to uh, work with their employees in terms of ethics or is this more something in high school to get kids used to um you know ethics before they kind of get right. into the world yeah, this one was intended actually for college courses. So it was designed in conjunction with some professors at the University okay. of Oklahoma to be used in, um, yeah, uh, in the in the business school in uh, their ethics classes. Um, we've had some high school students play it as well, but mostly it, it's intended for uh, for college. Yeah. How long is the development time of a game like that versus doing like a board game? Like, are they comparable, or is like the video game industry a lot longer? Or what's well, your experience? I would say that. So first of all, the, the educational video game industry is very different from the entertainment video game industry. It but is. a game like Paper Trail probably took us eight months. Okay. Um, wow. So it was actually pretty fast turnaround, right? Um, we've done other games that have taken a couple of years. Like we did a weather awareness game that took probably two years to produce and a financial literacy game that probably took a year and a half, you know? So it depends yeah. a lot. Um, we do some other things that are, you know, much quicker experiences that have just taken, you know, a couple months, you know, um, yeah. it just depends on the project, but yeah. And you're yeah. physically doing the, the programming as well, or do you I'm hand it off to somebody on another team? I work with a, I work with a team. So okay. we've got a team of, uh, I think like three or four programmers and yeah. a team of artists and a producer. And I work with one other writer. So we've got, a, we've got a small team, you know, working on that, that, uh, yeah, they do a really good job. <laughs> so I look at a game like Paleo Vet, which has taken, I think, two years. I think I was reading somewhere that started in, in 2020. Take, yeah. yeah, yeah, now you're 2022. Um, like, where where did that idea come from? Like, wh what was the genesis of this of this this game idea, Paleo Vet, of kind of working on dinosaurs as like a like a veterinarian? Right. So I've, I mean, I've always loved dinosaurs. You know, yeah. like going back to as a kid, you know, going back to experiences of seeing the original Jurassic Park in the theaters, you know, and every single other one since then. Right. Um, so I had this idea uh, after watching the second Jurassic World movie, because there's a character in there who is a paleo veterinarian. Um, and I really like that idea. And I really like that character. Um, and so that just kind of sparked the idea. And I wanted to make a I wanted to make a lighter game. I wanted to mess with some dice mechanics and custom dice. Um, and somehow all that just sort of meshed together to come up with the first version of PaleoVet. Mm -hmm. um, and it, um, you know, the original version was was pretty simple. It's not too different from the final version, but um, it was definitely simpler. There, there were no effects on the dinosaur cards. There were no upgrades. It was just, you know, buying dice and a stream, a constant stream of dinosaurs coming out of a deck that you had mm -hmm. to cure. Um, and then we just sort of built on that from there um, yep. to get to get to where we are now. And then when I look at, and I'm sharing on the screen here for people that um, are watching live or on the replay, um, man, like the artwork is 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 beautiful and it is pretty straightforward. Like, you know, mm -hmm. there's no guess as to what the game is about, right? Paleo right. plus a vet, right? Yeah. Um, did you like how long has the artwork and everything kind of been in play? Is this something that you kind of did as you developed it, or is this almost kind of how it um, looked at the beginning? We had the game. I'm gonna say the game was probably ninety percent 
done all tightened up before we got an artist mm. um we've kind of learned over time that you know if you if you start the art too early if, if you're if you're one of those people who happens to be a game designer and an artist it can work <laughs> yeah. if you're having to contract people to make the art if you start the art too early you run into issues where you change something and you have to spend more money to change yeah. the art um so we like to have the game very very close to done before we start paying for art um so in, in that case, so being close to done is using like uh, just whatever you can find under Google Images as kind of placeholders or? Yep. Yeah, the yeah the, the, the earlier versions, it was definitely like, uh, you know, black and white images. We just grabbed, you know, stock photos of dinosaurs, mm -hmm. you know, from Creative Commons. Um, we built the cards out in um, Component Studio and, you know, it, it had the general layout and all the information that was on there. But then, um, you know, from there we hired, first we hired an illustrator. Um, so we looked at actually a couple of different illustrators. Originally, we were going to go with a much more serious kind of style. Mm. We were going to go with something that looked a lot more like, um, you know, sort of nature, like sketches kind of, you know, like, yeah. um, like you'd see like, you know, more realistic reconstructions. Um, like and then Jurassic we found Park. Susanna. Yeah. And then we found Susanna, you know, and as we were looking through our artists and we found Susanna, we were like, this is amazing because she did a lot of really storybook stuff. She had a lot of um, you know, fairy tales and dragons and things originally. And we were like, this could work really cool with dinosaurs. And so we um, contacted her. She was super excited about it. She's, you know, she's really into biology. I think she was majoring in biology at the time and she was really into it. And so she was super excited about that. And then we contracted another, we contracted Bridget for the graphic design based on some of her previous work too. Um, and she was able to mesh the, the, the graphic design and the colors and everything's just right in with what Susanna did. Um, and she took our basic layout, but then like we kind of let her run with it and she developed all the icons and um, improved the layout a lot to end up with something that looks, you know, really beautiful. And we've been super happy with. It's very cohesive, I would say too. So if I look at your illustration um, and also like the, the graphic elements, as you're saying, iconography and so forth. I mean, it all, it all, it's cohesive, right? It all fits yeah. very well together, which I think is great. Cause you can sometimes run into the risk where you have your illustrations and then you have someone else doing, you know, your icons and the overlays and so forth, and they don't necessarily match up, but these look beautiful. The custom dice are awesome. How could you explain kind of in a nutshell, how to play this game to the listeners? You want me to will, or you, you, got go, it? you go for it. Okay. So paleo vet, you are veterinarians have been sent to a, uh, abandoned dinosaur park. And you're there to treat all these sick and injured dinosaurs that were left behind. Each round, you're adding a dinosaur to your, your hospital, which is kind of the tableau in front of you. Mm. Um, dinosaurs will only sleep for a certain number of turns. So you only have a, a certain number of turns before they're going to wake up and run away. If they're a carnivore, when they wake <laughs> up, they're going to eat another dinosaur on the way out. So you got a little bit of a, a little risk there. And then you start out with four basic treatment dice. You're rolling them using the icons. Matching icons can buy upgrades, buy wild, uh, buy additional dice, etc. Or matching the icons to the icons of the dinosaurs let you treat them and thus score them, so they go into your victory pile. Can you tranquilize them, and get them to sleep longer too, or no? Uh, there are some dino effects that'll let you make a dinosaur sleep longer. Otherwise, they you know you only get the initial tranquilizing, and then they will eventually wake up. Mm. And then you can get there are darts on the dice where you can get additional dinosaurs if you want to push your luck a little bit more. So, and then uh, is there like my understanding there's like dice manipulation and so forth in, involved in this game, or how's that? Work? Yeah, is so like drafting uh, or is it manipulating? It's so it's uh, mostly manipulating. So you uh, like I said, you start with your first your initial four. You can buy up to three additional ones. The the additional specialty dice just have more of a specific side on them, so they have a higher odds of getting that specific icon. 
And then the upgrade cards on the dinosaurs all have effects on them. And depending on which effects you have and how you kind of combo that, you can, you know, control the facing of dice or re-roll dice and, you know, do various things with them. Oh, that's yeah, cool. There's a lot of a lot of choice about you know do I get another dinosaur or try to cure another dinosaur this round? Do I go ahead and buy another dice? Do I buy an upgrade? Which one? You know sometimes people want to keep a dinosaur in their hospital longer because its effect is really useful, but you're running the risk of that dinosaur waking up while it's there. Um, so there's there's a good amount of strategy in it that isn't you know apparent as you look at this. Yeah. You know like on the on, on face value it's a very simple game, but as you dive into it, there's a lot more choices to be made. Mm. Um, than it might eventually look. I think it was Edo's review I was watching. Uh, he he absolutely loved it, which I thought mm -hmm. was kind of cool because uh, he he doesn't pull punches. <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> so I love Bud Edo. He's a good guy. Um, so so you release a cure dinosaurs that gives you your victory points. Um, is how how's the end of the game triggered? How does that work? So you have five out in the center of the table. We have what we call the field, and you have five okay. stacks of dinosaurs out there. When one of those stacks runs out because people are getting dinosaurs each turn. When one of those stacks runs out, that triggers the end game. You finish that round, and then everyone scores up what they've actually managed to treat, what they managed to cure. So you add up all your victory points at that point. Is there any lost victory points for dinosaurs that are still on the table? There are not. No. Yeah, we tried to keep that intentionally simple. We didn't. We just wanted the, the cured dinosaurs to be the points. Um, so buying resources and, and, and leftover dinosaurs, we didn't do any negative points or any additional things like that. We just want to keep it straight and simple. What you cure is your points mm -hmm. and i think you guys had two reward levels i believe or two core reward levels right one is kind yep. of standard edition with like mm -hmm. your cardboard punch outs mm -hmm. and then if you want the deluxe then there's like acrylic dna tokens uh, and tokens yep. and so forth i think there's actual tableau boards as well i think come with that yep. yeah. version. We, we've yeah, got um individual player boards um that you show you know for your hospital to lay your you know lay your cards on yeah. um, and and the um yeah, and the acrylic tokens that replace the the little punch board tokens. Yeah. Um, so both games are going to come in the same box, but if you get the the uh, deluxe version, you'll get these extra components that will, of course, fit in the box. And you swap them um, out. Yeah. We've got a couple other stretch goals that are coming up that will be exclusive to the deluxe version as well. So we've got a, a one of them is going to be an oversized first player meeple in the in the uh, shape of a, a minmi which is kind of like an ankylosaurus okay um and then we're going to eventually if we hit um one of our higher stretch goals um get a central player board that represents the field that the, the dinosaur stacks um uh the stacks of cards will sit on so lots of extra you know presence on the table with that mm -hmm. version well you're almost at your top stretch goal now you still got 15 days to go so you know it, it looks like the sky's the limit at this point right yeah, I think we're going to do well. Yeah, we're about, I think, $500 away, give or take, from that, uh, that first player that first player token meeple, which makes yeah. me very happy because I definitely want to unlock that. <laughs> um, and then after that, some uh, upgraded dice. And then, yeah, that, uh, that play mat at uh, 28000 which, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to unlock that. I, we're, we're doing really well. How does the uh, first player, like, so there's, there's a, I believe, a, a single player mode, right? Like a solo mode in this game? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does that work, or how is it different than when you're playing kind of competitively? Uh, you want to go? Oh, sure. I'll get it. Uh, so <laughs> we uh, we basically designed a uh, uh, automata deck. So like you know some okay. other decks. So you have a deck of cards that when you flip it, remove you know tells you which resources or dinosaurs to remove from the uh, from the game to kind of simulate a second player. Got and it. then that also is generating these score piles that you're competing against. So at the end. You know, it's not always the same score you're competing against. You're going to be looking at the end, counting up the score of those other piles versus what you got to see whether or not you won. 
Yep. If you beat one of the, so yeah, the, the cards direct you which pile to put the removed dinosaur cards into. And if you beat the score of the lower pile, then you've achieved a minor victory. If you beat the score of the higher pile, you've achieved a major victory. Um, and the major victory is pretty challenging. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's doable, but it definitely requires some, some, uh, some thinking and careful planning. Yeah. And certainly I think uh, COVID has shown us that um, there's a lot of room for oh, yeah. solo play modes in games, right? So this is your second shot at this particular game. Uh, so I'd be remiss not to mention it. You launched, I believe it was in October. Uh, I think you, I mean, it didn't, you, you end up pulling the campaign. It's not like the campaign right. failed. I think you were only a few days in or partway in and you guys pull it. Mm -hmm. What was the decision you made to pull? Like at that time, I think you're at $12,000, which was still pretty decent. Um, what was the rationale? Um, so for the, the first launch, uh, we made it in, I want to say 10 or 11 days. I think, um, our goal for that one was 12,000. Mm. We had, were sitting at about 9,000, I think at that point, about, a you know, about 9,000. Yeah. Yeah. At, at, you know, at a third of the way into the campaign, um, and watching the numbers and kind of doing the math, uh, you know, they, they talk about with Kickstarter, it's usually, you know, you make the bulk of your, your funding is that, you know, the first 48 hours and the last 72 hours, and yeah. you got, you always have a lull in the middle and we'd hit that lull hard. Um, I, we literally, I think the last day we had, we had one new backer and I think two cancellations, yeah. something like that. So, you know, we, we'd actually, we ended that day having lost money. <laughs> And uh, we, we did the math and figured that it, the likelihood of us actually funding was very slim at that point. Um, and so we, you know, we let our backers know, hey, we're sorry about this, but, you know, it happens. And uh, we canceled and then came back and made sure we kept them updated on, hey, here's what we're doing to improve. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do to make sure this funds next time. And we spent the since, you know, from October until uh, beginning of this month or last month working on that. And it worked. <laughs> Yeah, it's an absolute grind, right? And I, I just pulled my last campaign and we relaunched in Kickstarter and, you know, did in the first day what took us, you know, like four days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think people don't necessarily realize how important that math is, right? So as yep. you're saying, the 48 hours at the beginning, 72 hours at the end, to go from nine to $12,000 doesn't seem like a big jump. But you really don't want to wait until the last, like, two days to find out if you're going to make it right. Yeah. Like you're going to have to like, you know, if you're 10 days in, if it's a forward campaign, you've got another week and a half. Mm -hmm. You're just going to have to sit there and let it cook. And it's amazing when people look at a campaign that's stagnant, they'll jump out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they will. They will. So you, you start, you start actually going down, you start trending mm -hmm. down and then more people are like, Oh, there's something wrong here. Maybe they're not going to make it. And they start jumping out and you, you know, you want to say to them, Hey, if you stay on, if everyone just stays on the ship, we right? can make we're, it. Yeah. We're going to make it to shore. But the problem is, is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as people start yeah. jumping out, more people want to jump out. So obviously you made the right decision. Mm -hmm. um, what's some of the things you did differently this time that you didn't do last time? Like, can you give us like one or two things maybe for some people I, out there or they're in the same situation that they should consider? I mean, the first one, and I think this is, you know, we, we probably launched earlier than we should have with the first one, um, but it's, it's audience building. You know, mm -hmm. with if you're one of the really big names, you know, their audience is there. You're going to launch. You're going to fund. It's going to happen. But if you're, you know, if you're a little indie creators, you have to bring an audience with you. And Kickstarter is all about momentum. So you need to bring enough audience with you to fund in those first 48 hours. Yeah. Because if you fund in those first 48 hours, that lets everyone know, okay, this thing's happening. I'm going to jump on. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so having a big, having a good community behind you, ready to back you on that first or second day is huge. We, you know, have, have a good mailing list. Yeah, we basically doubled our mailing list between the first and second campaign. And so that was a huge, huge factor in, uh, in this. Um, yeah, I think there's some other things that we did really well, too. Like we, we revamped the Kickstarter page to present it a lot better to, you know, get across the, the information a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, we added a few, we simplified a few things on the campaign to just make it clearer for backers. We um, added a few things that were really um, desired, like the solo mode. And now we made the solo mode a stretch goal. And if there's one thing I could have done differently now, I think I would have just had that available at launch instead of mm-hmm. as a stretch goal because yeah. that was in very high demand we got a lot of extra backers after it unlocked there were a lot of people yeah. that wanted that specifically so that's definitely something that um on our next game we'll definitely include a solo mode from the get-go mm-hmm. i think that goes for any any game if you can cre- if you can add something into the game that make it a better game and you can do that for mm-hmm. marginally increased cost yeah. which is solo mode quite frankly is instructions mm-hmm. right yeah um I mean, you should do it, right? You should put it in at the beginning because it is going to strengthen you at the gate. Obviously, you don't want to put everything but the kitchen sink in, especially if those things come with cost. But if there's anything, any value you can add at little to no cost, uh, you should do it. Yeah, definitely. No, it's crazy. Your mailing list you're talking about. So how big does the mailing list have to get? So like, do you guys mind saying like, how how big did your mailing list get to from like the going from the first time to the second time? I think we had around 350 people on our mailing list the first time around, mm. and now we're a bit over 700. Wow. Um, okay. And I don't know what an ideal amount of mailing list is, right? So, based on the the on ours, um, even with 700 people, we usually get 200 to 250 email opens, yeah. and from that, uh, maybe less than a hundred, maybe 50 to hundred clicks on mm-hmm. what, what we're driving them to. Right. So there's like a, a definitely like a percentage of a percentage of people. And then yeah. of those clicks, yeah. only a certain number of them backed. Um, but we had definitely enough of pe- people on our mailing list and following our Facebook page and following our Twitter or, you know, whatever else, mostly Facebook and, and the mailing list mm-hmm. to push us over the edge. Um, yeah. How'd you go and- about building that, that mail list? Was it just, like, did you grind it out? Did you run like lead gen ads? Like, how um, did you guys put it? We, we we ran ads. We went to local conventions, mm-hmm. the social media. Yeah, so pretty much any any funnel we could find to kind of direct people towards it. Really, yeah, and, um, yeah. And one thing that we did that I think really did help was we offered a free point and play if you signed up on the mailing list. Yeah, so mm. that got people to take a look at what PaleoVet is. You know, in that version, um, got their emails on our mailing list and, you know, um, giving some like, people that incentive, the little opt-in incentives mm-hmm. um, and help, you know, it really yeah. Makes yeah. People, um, gives people a reason to, to look into that. Yeah. And one side effect of that is uh, we actually, one of the people who got on a mailing list, got that print and play, they made the tabletop simulator mod that we have on the Kickstarter that we have a link to. Oh, that's cool. They like the game enough, and apparently that's their hobby is making the mod. So they made one. They you know, emailed us and said, hey, do you mind? I made this. Take a look. We looked at it and said, that looks great. Better than you know we could ourselves, so we're going to go with it. Oh, that's fantastic. It, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how many people in this industry are willing to help mm-hmm. just yeah. to help, just to be part yeah. of it, right? And, you know, I... I think sometimes people are afraid to ask, right? They're afraid to, to put it out there to say, hey, 
if anybody wants help on this game, we're looking for help and here's the, the areas they can help. You know, it's almost like they're nervous, like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to have a budget for this or people going to ask for a budget. You'd be surprised how many people actually just want because they enjoy it. They just want to yeah. be part of it. Right. And they're not necessarily going to charge you. They might, you should probably throw them at least a free game, mm-hmm. you know, but, but they, they want to be part of it. So that's super cool to hear. I mean, this is now, I think your sixth campaign, five games you guys have launched. Clearly you're not stopping. Um, do, do you have, can you, can you give us a tease of what's coming after uh, paleo vet or kind of yeah. what's, what's next up for you guys? Absolutely. So our, our immediate next project is going to be a solo RPG um, for, uh, for Zine Quest. And we're mm-hmm. going to launch that pretty quick after the end of uh, PaleoVet. So these zines are, you know, they're, they're fairly cheap to produce. Um, there's definitely a lot of writing time and testing time that goes into them, mm-hmm. but they're, they're fairly cheap to produce. So we're able to get that out. Um, and it's, it's going to be a horror-themed um, uh, solo RPG about um, two people who are trapped together in sort of an isolated environment, and one of them is slowly changing into a monster. Um, <laughs> so that is one of our next immediate projects. But then we've got a couple other games in the works. And Dave, mm-hmm. if you want to mention those. Yeah, I think, you know, knock on wood that, you know, I get everything finalized on it. But the, hopefully around this time next year, we should hopefully be delivering PaleoVet. And if everything works out, also launching our next Kickstarter. Um, for a uh, spy-themed strategy game I've been working on uh, that's called Espionage. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, so it's kind of a right during the kind of Cold War era, you know, moving around Europe, collecting intelligence, trying to, uh, you know, avoid other spies and, you know, to complete your uh, your secret objectives kind of thing, so. So with all these games you guys having, um, like, is there, how, how do people get on your email list? Like, how do they follow you guys or, or you know, kind of follow the journey along? Is there a social page they should go to or how yeah, much do they so, do that? Um, our website is absurdistproductions.com and you can definitely sign up on our mailing list there. Yeah. Uh, we're on Twitter as absurdistprod because they wouldn't let us finish the name because it was too long. <laughs> and we're Absurdist Productions on Facebook and Instagram. So um, any of those um, are perfectly fine. We definitely like keep up with all of them. Oh, that's cool. If people want to check out this campaign, all they have to do is just search Paleo Vet when they go on to Kickstarter. Yep. I'll also put a link down in the show notes so they can just have a quick link and get there even easier if they want to check out the campaign. I certainly think they should. There's a lot of cool stuff there to check out. Gentlemen, I want to wish you all the best this coming year on this campaign. Congrats against, uh, again on what you've done here. This has been awesome. You should be very, very proud. And I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. Thank, Thank you so much. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.